0: Now, um, we've only had one speaker uh, share three times over the weekend, but uh, there's good reason. He is very popular, and I actually am involved in the local radio station here in Toowoomba, and we've had a very heavy rotation uh, advertising his talks. And uh, I've been very concerned because one of them that we've been advertised, advertising has been Five reasons you should be concerned about Americans. And I I mean what what is with that? I mean you're an American. And I am too, and it, it doesn't help. So I don't know, maybe he's gonna shed some light on what he is talking about. Would you put your hands together once again for the skateboarder David Asherick?
1: Is it clicker out there? All right, good afternoon, everyone. Good to be, are you enjoying Prophetica? Yes. How good was that Josh Cunningham concert? Man, I had front row seats. I was, I was right there and uh, getting video of it, and uh, he's a dear friend. By the way, that question about how do you get a beard like that, that could have easily been asked by me. It wasn't, but it could have been. I try not to covet things. I try not to be envious of things, but... It is the truth that it's hard for me to be the friend of Josh because I'm in a continual state of envy about his beard. I've I've tried to grow out a beard, but it doesn't really work. I just get like four little patches of like Brillo pads. Do you have Brillo pads here in Australia? It it doesn't look good at all. So uh, what we're going to be talking about here is five reasons to be nervous about America. I want to make the distinction, not about Americans (laughs) as such, but about America. I want to talk about America and who better to do it than an American. Five reasons to be nervous about America. There's a lot of material we're gonna cover here, so we're gonna see just how fast I can speak. Okay, we're gonna start with reason number one. The first is the enormous military and military spending. The United States military is astronomically large. The size of the United States military compared to all other nations is just fantastic. And I wanna try and set a stage here for what that means and why that's significant and just how big we're talking about. First of all, the United States Senate recently approved, just a few months ago, a 700 billion dollar annual budget for 2017. Now that is not the largest annual budget that the United States has ever had. I think the largest budget was in 2010. There was a 768 billion dollars. That's annual billion dollars being spent on defense budget. Now just to try and put that in some sort of a context, The $700 billion budget, if it goes through and there's every indication that President Trump will approve it, that that is $1.92 billion per day, okay? Or to bring it down even a little tighter, that's $80 million an hour, every hour of every day of the year being spent on defense, okay? Is that a large amount of money? It's, it's an impossibly large amount of money. And I want to talk about why that's significant and why it's something that we should be nervous about. Even as an American, I'm nervous about it. And I think, frankly, the rest of the world should be a little nervous as well. Hal Brands, in his Bloomberg article, Seven Deadly Myths of U.S. Defense Spending, says, for decades, the United States has stabilized inter- the international order in part by maintaining what Brands calls a preponderance of military power. When you're spending something like 700 billion dollars every single year, you are going to have a preponderance of military power. And especially in the post-Cold War world, the United States has become not merely a superpower, but what you might call an Uber power. Now Brands here is suggesting that it is that preponderance of military power that allows there to be stability internationally. I would like to suggest that while that might appear to be the case superficially, in fact it's actually destabilizing the global uh, uh, uh situation, the global political situation, geopolitical. This is a graph that's put together by uh, nationalprioritiesproject.com and this gives you just a sort of visual perspective on how much the United States is spending on defense and military relative to the other major nations, the top nations. So China, Saudi Arabia, Russia, United Kingdom, India, France, and Japan. So if you're looking at that graph and thinking, you know what, it looks like the United States spends more on defense spending than the next six, seven, or eight nations combined, you would be correct. You would be correct. That is an astronomical amount of money. Not just in conventional, but this is the thing that's probably the most terrifying. This graph here is estimated global nuclear warhead inventories as of 2017. Now you've got everybody else down here, France, China, UK, Pakistan, India, Israel, and of course the United States and Russia as a, as a byproduct of the proliferation of, of um, not a byproduct, but the product of a proliferation of the nuclear escalation that took place during the Cold War. You notice that um, uh, you have 1950 in Russia and 1800. These are deployed not just stockpiled, but deployed. The light blue there is retired. So you probably are aware that this is enough, uh, conventional warfare aside, nuclear warfare alone, this is enough nuclear weaponry to destroy the earth over and over and over again. There are estimates that the earth could be destroyed some 7,000 or 7,500 times over and over again. It's just absolutely astonishing. A story is told by a man by the name of Gatlin. I think his name was William Gatlin. I might have his first name wrong. But when he invented a gun called the Gatlin gun, he brought out the major arms players in the United States at the time to show them his invention. And it was a gun that allowed rapid fire. There was a crank arm on it, and you could just da, 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 da. You, could, you could dispense a huge amount of bullets where you didn't have this musket loading taking a long time. You could just dispense a tremendous number of bullets in very short order. And as Gatling was giving a demonstration of this to these arms dealers that were coming to look at it, this is back in, I think, the early 1800s, one of the arms dealers remarked and said, but, but Mr. Gatling, won't this make war all the more terrible? To which, without missing a beat, Mr. Gatling support, uh, reportedly responded, no, this weapon will make war impossible. The idea was that, that it would be so obvious, that it would be so easy to take human life, that people would somehow magically, in a eureka moment, see the futility of war. Just a single question. Was Mr. Gatling's reasoning correct or incorrect? It's decidedly And so the first reason to be nervous about the United States is just an astronomical amount of money that's being spent year after year after year after year. And, of course, the United States, if somebody was here, a hawkish defender of U.S. military spending, were here to debate me on the stage, they would say, this is necessary. It's required in order to maintain international order and stability. Reason number two would be my response. The rise of the so-called military-industrial complex in combination with United States foreign policy. Let me talk to you about that term there. That term, military industrial complex, was first used by the 34th 34th President of the United States of America, Dwight D. Eisenhower, January 17th, 1961, in his farewell address to the American people. And I want you to listen very carefully, because Eisenhower's words are almost prophetic. Notice. He says, the conjunction of an immense military establishment and a large arms industry is the, is new in the American experience. This is new, right? This is post-World War I, post-World War II, and all of a sudden the United States in meteoric rise is on the scene as the preeminent superpower. And so Eisenhower says, this is new in the American experience. He goes on. The total influence, economic, political, even spiritual, he says very insightful man, is felt in every city, in every state house, in every office of the federal government. We we recognize the imperative need for this development, yet we must not fail to comprehend its grave implications. Our toil as Americans, resources and livelihood are all involved. So is the very structure of our society. In the councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence. Now watch where he goes. He's going to coin the term right here. Whether sought or unsought by the military-industrial complex. He says we need to be careful the influence here, whether sought or unsought. He goes on to say the potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and will persist. We must never let the weight of this combination endanger our liberties or democratic processes. We should take nothing for granted. Only an alert, knowledgeable citizenry can compel the proper meshing of the huge industrial and military machinery of defense with our, and notice these next two words, what are the next two words? Peaceful methods and goals so that security and liberty may prosper together. Let me translate all of those words that Eisenhower put there in his farewell address. He's basically saying, foreign war is good for business in America. And this is a terrifying combination. You see, the, the United States went reluctantly into the First World War and the Second World War. Very reluctantly, especially into the Second World War. And then in the post-Second World War with the defeated Germany and with really Russia being the only other large, major uh, world superpower on the stage, the United States assumed itself into a role, again, not just of superpower, but increasingly as an uberpower. And what Eisenhower is saying is, hey, we need to be careful. This is a new reality on the horizon of the American experiment and we now know that we've got this, this whole complex that is making lots of military equipment and it's making a lot of people a lot of money. And he says, we need to be careful. We need to be very, very careful. Well, that was in 1961. The question is, what has happened? Have Eisenhower's concerns I have, were, they mis, were they unfounded? Was he being alarmist? Or have his concerns come to fruition? And the answer is, they have come to fruition in a terrifying way. Because what we have seen increasingly is that the United States positions itself as a kind of policing force for the world. Right, we see ourselves in this sort of, you know, but we're the ones, the pl- everybody's up playing on the playground and the United States is there as the teacher sort of adjudicating and, and uh, d- deciding between various regional conflicts. Well, then you get the situation, and I don't probably have to tell you this, where some of the things that the United States gets involved in are very questionable, highly questionable. And we're supposedly going in in the name of freedom and of liberty and all of this, but it's hard to deny for the, for the honest observer that there is a significant financial incentive to go to war. I want to say that again. A significant financial incentive to go to war. And friends, that is a terrifying combination. When war becomes profitable, you have the development of the military-industrial complex. And Eisenhower, not some alarmist preacher of Bible prophecy, the 34th president of the United States of America said, this is something we need to be very, very careful about. And there is a byproduct of this massive military-industrial complex that has just grown exponentially, especially in the wake of uh, of the fall of communism. Okay, that's why I showed you those graphs there. And that's my third reason to be nervous about America, the increasing militarization of the United States' domestic police force. What happens is now that you have this huge proliferation of arms and arms manufacturers literally flooding the American military market, well, when newer and better and faster and greater guns and, and cannons and planes and other things are being produced, then what happens, it's like, well, how do? what do we do with the old stuff? And increasingly what's happened is, many of these weapons that have been developed for foreign wars are now being sold back to domestic police forces by the United States military and the federal government. Barack Obama recognized this in May 18, 2015, and he said these important words, and they're frankly insightful words. He says, we have seen how militarized gear can sometimes give people, he's talking about United States citizens, a feeling like it's an occupying force as opposed to a force that's a part of the community that's protecting and serving them. So we're going to prohibit equipment made for the battlefield that is not appropriate for local police departments. He said this in 2015. That order, however, has been overturned by President Trump. And this has been lampooned in numerous situations. This is 1965, you have Barney Fife. Do you know who Barney Fife is? Right, So you have the Andy Griffith show in 1965, and in 2014, you have have the militarization of our local police forces. And then I love this quote from Abraham Maslow, when you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. When you have this massive proliferation of of spending and of the military-industrial complex, that is not only leaking all over the world, it's becoming increasingly common even in the United States. And probably you have seen some of these images. This is an image, a recent image from Baton Rouge, Louisiana that went viral, right? What you have is just a, 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 a person clearly unarmed, clearly not a threat, and you have these RoboCop looking figures. These, this is not the American military. This is a local police force in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. And these images just are there more and more of them. This is, again, just a local police force. This might as well be the streets of Afghanistan or of Iraq, right? Again and again. Here's yet another one. This is the St. Louis Police Department. Now, I don't know how that makes you feel as an Australian, but I can tell you this. As an American, as somebody whose brother is a police officer, my older brother's been a police officer for, oh, man, he was, he was in the military, then he went straight into the police, I don't know, 25 years or something like that. I am thankful for law enforcement, right? I think we need law enforcement for basic, uh, you know, civil uh, conduct and, and to maintain law and order. I get all of that, but that looks terrifying. And what's happening is, is that we're seeing a spilling over the militarization of the industrial complex back into domestic police forces. And this has been noted by n- numerous people, numerous magazine articles and books, including this one by Radley Balko, uh, Rise of the Warrior Cop, the militarization of America's police forces. And so as an American, there is a real concern that we have so much money, we just can't afford to not keep Uh, To not keep spending money on military things. Well, how do we keep the flow going? And what we're seeing is, all of a sudden, our own streets at times can begin to look like demilitarized zones from war-torn nations far away. Okay, reason number three. Now, reason number four is just two words, and you probably could have guessed it. Donald Trump. Now, I'm just going to leave that right there. I'm just going to leave that right there, because I don't want to be perceived as saying things that are political. I'm actually... I'm I'm actually a very apolitical person. Uh, If you ever come and talk to me about American politics or Australian politics, in fact, I have numerous church members who know far more about American politics than I do. At least they're far more loyal to American political watching than I am. But I can say this, President Trump, and this this is not political, this is just factual, right? This is just observational. President Trump is a unique president, unlike any president we've ever seen in the history of the United States of America, right? He's unique on many levels. Right, And one of the things that makes some of us very nervous is not only is he unique, but he's volatile, right? I mean, the, you just look at the guy and he just looks like, was that the guy that I would want to have his, the ability, the capacity to have his finger on the nuclear weapon, on the nuclear button? What's interesting is, is that this was one of the critiques that was raised of President Trump in the lead up to the recent election. And people like Clinton and Bernie Sanders and others were saying, this is not a guy that you want, with the capacity or the ability to have his finger on the nuclear button. And a lot of people poo-pooed that and said, nah, there's nothing to it, Ah, there's no issue with that. And all of a sudden, look at what we have. We have a rapid and frankly terrifying escalation with North Korea and Kim Jong-un. I had a good friend of mine, a very intelligent friend of mine, who is a keen observer of international politics, also a very wealthy person. And he sent me an article recently that basically said, war with North Korea is inevitable, and here are the reasons why. Now, I just wanna let this sink into your mind. I don't know if it is or it isn't, and I'm not making any predictions here. My friend says, war with North Korea is inevitable. But I wanna say this, if and when this happens, and I sure hope it doesn't, this will not be a conventional military affair. Because Korea has the capacity, by all indications, for a nuclear war, this is a brave new world that is absolutely terrifying. And would I rather see somebody that was a little more moderate? Somebody that was, yes, yes. And so reason number four, and this is not a comment on his social policy or on his economic policy. Frankly, these things are, are not major interest to me. But when I see that man and I see the way he acts and I see the way he has acted over the course of his life and I think it is terrifying that this man is in charge as the commander in chief of the largest military that the world has ever seen. A military that is capable of blowing the earth up again and again. And that brings me to my fifth and final point. People like myself and others believe that Bible prophecy actually foretold that there would be the meteoric rise of a giant, an enormous global military economic force, particularly found in Revelation chapter 13. Now, I brought Revelation chapter 13 up here to read, and it is fairly complicated. I'm not pretending like it's not. If you want to get a more in-depth study of this, I encourage you to just go to uh, YouTube, and you can Google my name, if you can spell it right, which almost nobody can, Asherik, A-W-S-C-H-E-R-I-C-K, just like it sounds, right? And you can type in United States. If you put in Asherik, United States, a number of presentations that I have done on the United States and Bible prophecy will come up, and I'll walk you through in detail the symbolic imagery of Revelation chapter 13. So what I'm going to do next is going to be very quick and a very... A very, very, very summarized version of the concern that I have and others share. This man here is a man by the name of J.N. Andrews, or John Nevin Andrews. He was born in 1829, died in 1883. He was a young Bible scholar, and he was the first person that we know of who put forth the idea that the description of the second beast of Revelation chapter 13 fit the United States almost to a T. What you see when you come to Revelation chapter 13, there are two beasts. You have the sea beast that rises up out of the sea. That's why he's referred to as the sea beast. And there are a number of identifying marks about the sea beast, right? This first beast has been widely regarded by historicist interpreters of Bible prophecy as the medieval church, right? But there's always been this second beast that comes up out of the earth, has two horns like a lamb, and speaks like a dragon. In fact, there's this fascinating little verse. And maybe I will just read you that one verse here. It's Revelation chapter 13, verse 11. John says, John the Revelator says, then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb and it spoke like a dragon. Now that's a fascinating text of scripture because it's the only passage in all of the Bible that puts these two words in such close proximity, in such close juxtaposition, lamb and dragon. Now the lamb in scripture is Jesus Christ. John the Baptist, the elder cousin of Jesus said, behold the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. The dragon is always a symbol for Satan himself. And so what you have is this really tense juxtaposition, this this combination of lamb-like properties and dragon-like properties. And so people have been looking at the first piece of Revelation 13 for for literally centuries and saying that looks like the medieval church. It looks exactly like the little horn of Daniel chapter seven and eight. But this second beast has been mystifying, and J.N. Andrews came in sometime in the 1870s and said, the second beast is none other than the United States of America. And this is the identifying marks of the second beast. He exercises the authority of that first sea beast. He causes the earth to worship a beast. Great signs, even fire from heaven. I wish I had time to develop what that might mean. Fire from heaven, miraculous fire from heaven deceives earth by signs, makes an image of the first beast, gives breath to the sea beast, the first beast, threatens death to all noncompliance. enforces a mark of loyalty referred to as the mark of the beast and employs economic threats and means. Just a quick word on that. The fact that the second beast is able to employ a universal mark and universal economic sanctions strongly suggests that it has to be, in fact, it doesn't just suggest it, it demands that this is a power with economic, World global economic power and influence the fact that it threatens the earth the entire earth. It has to also have military Influence and so you don't have a you don't have a lot of powers that could frankly fit this if Uganda or Jamaica or Zimbabwe suddenly decided to enforce some kind of a mark very few countries would pay them any attention Right, but the United States of America There's a saying that goes like this when the United States of America sneezes the world gets a cold Right, There is an influence there, not just an economic influence, not just a military influence, but even a cultural influence. And so when you go to Revelation chapter 13, you're looking for these seven or eight identifying marks. You're looking for a nation that arises in a new area, that advocates lamb-like principles. Remember, he has lamb-like horns. No crown or king on those horns. According to the prophecy, it's going to arise around 1798. It will grow up as a young power. It will have global military and economic influence. It will develop a tight bond with that first beast, the medieval uh, church, and it will come eventually to speak like a dragon. Well it's not a coincidence that the Declaration of Independence was signed July 4th, 1776, and the first Constitutional Convention of the United States of America was convened in 1787. The Declaration of Independence says we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed, that whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, this sounds almost Eisenhower-esque, it is the right of the people, that's what he talked about, an informed citizenry, to alter or to abolish that government, and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing powers in such form. We could talk about the Establishment Clause. Congress will make no law respecting the establishment of religion or the free exercise thereof. Basically, if you look at the history of what was called the American Experiment, it was founded upon two principles, what we might call Republicanism and Protestantism. Republicanism is freedom from a king, Protestantism was freedom from a pope. And on these two principles, the American Experiment went forward. Not a government over the people, but a government of and for and by the people. If you are a lover of liberty and or a student of Bible prophecy, this should make you very nervous. It's the age-old question, where does an 800-pound gorilla sit? And the answer is, wherever he wants. I close with this remarkable passage right in Revelation chapter 14. It says, here is the patience of the saints. Here are those that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. There will be a people on earth who will resist tyranny of all kinds, religious and governmental i am nervous about the united states of america not just based on evidence on on the evidentiary perspective not just based on observation and seeing the trajectory of the united states especially since world war ii but also based on bible prophecy and when you put bible prophecy together with the meteoric rise economic and military and cultural influence of the united states there are reasons to be nervous about the united states of america
0: Well, thank you very much, David. We just have a a couple of questions. Um, First of all, let me kick off with this one. Do you think China or Russia
1: may do a better job of world policemen? No, no. It's a great question because what's happening is in a fallen world, and this is why it's so critical that we have a larger biblical perspective, a larger spiritual perspective, what I call a meta-narrative, right? Every nation has its narrative. Australia has its narrative and we had Lyle Shelton here earlier talking to us about the narrative of the definition of marriage here So Australians are going to look out for Australian narratives and Australian culture and things that are important to Australia As are Americans, as are the Chinese, as are the Ugandans, as are the Jamaicans Every nation is looking out for their own narrative, for their own people, for their own situation What's happening though in a fallen world, a world of us and them and geopolitical conflict Someone is going to rise to the top of the heap During the Cold War period, there was a race to see who would get to the top of the heap. Do I want communist Russia as the police force of the the world? No, I do not. Do I want Hitler's Germany as the police force of the world? No, I do not. The point is not that the United States of America is all bad. The point is, is that if you have this large of a military with this increasingly volatile foreign policy, should that make us nervous? And the answer is yes. I will say this, and it might sound slightly in tension with what I just presented, but of all the nations that there are on earth, I would prefer the policing to be done by a nation like the United States of America that at least ostensibly upholds principles like liberty and freedom and justice. But the point is, is that in the words, the immortal words of Lord Acton, power tends to corrupt, but absolute power corrupts absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you. Uh, Should
0: Christians who understand this prophecy attempt to influence politics
1: or uh, delay it in any way? Great question. The answer is yes. I think that they should be involved in American politics. A friend of mine, Dr. Ben Carson, recently ran for the president of the United States of America. And... Uh, When I first heard that he was going to do this, I thought, Dr. Carson, you've lost your mind. And at no stage along the process did I think that he had done anything other than lost his mind, which was kind of an irony because he's a neurosurgeon, but that's beside the point. (laughs) Um, I I didn't hold him in contempt for it. I actually thought it was an ambitious and audacious thing. I, I thought, man, good for you, Dr. Carson. I mean... The the truth of the matter is is that eventually the political machine ate him up and will eat up any honest person. I just have to emphasize that. Will eat up any honest person. And Dr. Ben Carson is an honest person. He is now I think the director of the housing and urban development uh, Mm. uh, group there in the United States. He's got a governmental job. So yes, people like Daniel and Joseph, God-fearing people should be involved in Mm. politics. The problem is is that almost no one gets in to the modern political game and gets out unscathed, yeah. right? You go in and you get muddied, you get dirtied, you get, there's all of this intrigue and power plays and all of that. It's very, very difficult. So do I believe, especially at a grassroots level, that Christians should be voicing their concerns and, and speaking out? Absolutely, I love Lyle Shelton's presentation as a case in point. This is a very good case in point where basic Christian values and, and frankly, just basic teleology, a man and a woman, are under attack from a radical movement, right? Should we be quiet? No, we should not be quiet. Should we speak up? Yes, we should speak up. And so even here, I'm speaking up right now. I'm speaking up right now. I, as an American, am deeply concerned about the trajectory of American influence. Do I have huge influence? No, I do not have huge influence. Do you? Probably not. But the influence that you do have, you can use to try in your own sphere of influence, make the world a better place with what I call common sense and with just a biblical awareness Mm. that as that beautiful, did you enjoy the movie last night? Yes. As that profoundly excellent movie last night pointed out, we are just a pale blue dot suspended Mm. in a sunbeam, right? There is a macro picture going on here. And the macro picture is that there is a God and he is good. And it, if the whole world goes to hell in a handbasket, which, frankly, it's not far away, God is still on the throne of the universe. Very good. Thank you. Is, yeah, you can apply that. It's
0: good. Every response is so good. Very kind. You're very kind. Um, finally, is Australia's close tie with the United States a good or a bad thing in light of what you've just been talking about? The,
1: the, okay, Australia is a—okay, here's the thing. Australia is a very small nation, right? Small, you're not small geographically but you're, what are you, 24 million people right now? So I don't, this is how it worked for me when I was, yeah, I was never very big, right? So, so if I was on the playground and there was somebody like Rome, right, and I could either be an enemy of Rome, I'm talking about Rome Julia who's given our talk here, or I could be the <laughs> you know. friend of Rome. By the way, isn't, isn't his name just absolutely perfect? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, By the way, Rome did eventually have an emperor that can profess Christianity, and I'm so glad that Rome professes Christianity as well. He's a genuine godly man. But if given the option to align myself as a skinny little boy with somebody like Rome, or to be at odds with somebody like Rome, I'm going to become his friend. And so my advice politically, not that this has any real whole, of course, uh, would be for Australia to make friends with nations like the United States of America. Of course, you're a small nation, you have a small military, you're vulnerable, there's no way you could police your borders. I mean, it would be impossible if some nation with significant military power decided that they wanted to come to Australia. You would not be able to stop them, and I know you know this. And so it's really good to have nations like the United States. And that's what's happening. U.S. foreign policy basically goes like this. They say, look, we know you're a small nation. You stand for basic democratic and capitalist principles. You cannot defend yourselves. We will defend you. Okay? And they'll leverage that defense to their own economic advantage, which is great. It's worked reasonably well since World War II onward. The problem is, is that the... I think you would have to be a naive observer to think that the United States is always magnanimous, that they're always liberty-seeking, that they always have the best interest. No, no, no. They are driven like like all people and all nations can be driven by economics. They can be driven by power, and they can be driven by less than um, virtuous uh, uh, motives. And uh, that is, I think, what's happening. And so, yeah, go ahead be friends of the United States of America, but be aware that 800 pound gorilla can turn. And uh, I think we're already seeing evidences that it's happening. Would
0: you put your hands together and thank David Asherik for being here. Let me the blessing. Thank
1: you guys. Ben has been great. Thank you. David. Oh, wow. Look at that. Yep. Excellent. And, uh, I've always wanted a black box with an orange ribbon. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Fantastic.